0: Well, good morning, church family. If this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, my name's Randy, and I'm uh, privileged to uh, serve as the senior minister here at the church. And we're in a series of messages. Uh, Actually, we're concluding a series this morning called I Have a Friend Who. And uh, we've been talking about uh, some of the different issues that friends in our circle of influence uh, have presented to us. And this morning, we are going to Talk about, we're going to learn about this issue of religious pluralism. Religious pluralism, the belief that all religions are the same, all religions lead. To God, That's where we're going this morning. And um, I'd like for us to turn to the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 17. Our scripture reading is taken from Acts 17, verses 16 to 34. You'll find that in your church Bibles, the navy blue Bibles in front of you on page 785. Page 785. And I'm going to begin reading with verse 16. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, well, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And the thought being is that they were thinking that Paul was talking about two deities, Jesus and his wife, resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are presenting some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. And then Luke kind of adds this aside in verse 21 all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your object of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council a few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is God's word. I've got a friend who thinks all religions are the same. This was one of the most prevalent responses that you gave me in our little survey that we took a couple of months ago uh, from which I had to select, you know, the top uh, subjects for this series. I have a friend, someone said who believes all religions are the same and have the same God. I have a, I have a friend who describes herself more as, a, as spiritual versus a Christian, although she attends a Christian church, she addresses God as the universe. I have a friend who thinks all religions are the same. I have a friend who can't believe Christianity is the only way to heaven. You hear this? So this is this is this very subject called religious pluralism. And it's very prevalent in our relationships today. And so I want us to talk about this. What I want to do is I want to first talk about why this seems to make sense. Why this seems to make sense. Because if we're going to interact with a particular worldview or a framework, we need to respect it enough to understand it. Alright? And so I want to just share why this might make sense to our friends. Why, why would our friends say this? I want to talk about that. And then, as, um, as, as gently and as clearly as I can, I want to explain why it can't possibly make sense. All right? And then, I want us to listen to these verses here in the life of the Apostle Paul who spoke to a culture steeped in religious pluralism. We're not that far removed from Athens in the first century as we might think. So that's where we're going today. And let's begin with this issue of, okay, why would someone uh, believe uh, in religious pluralism, the belief that all religions lead to God? Well, think about where we are today. We're in champaign Urbana. We're in a university community. We're in a community that celebrates diversity. We enjoy our interactions with those who come to, to our community from all. Uh, part, all parts of the world through my wife's career and English, uh, teaching English as a second language, we've had the privilege of hosting guests uh, from uh, uh, almost every continent uh, uh, and it's been enjoyable to hear about their backgrounds and to hear about their uh, nations and so we've got a community that really celebrates uh, d- uh, different nationalities, different ethnicities, and with that would come different religious beliefs. And so, you know, who are we then to say that one religious belief is superior to another? And so this idea of diversity is a cherished value in our community. And and along with that, you would... Uh, you would expect our uh, community to be very friendly toward that ancient parable of the blind men and the elephant originated from the country of India. Are you familiar with it? The parable of the blind men and the elephant. Six blind men made their way to the palace of the Raja and they encountered an elephant and they were wondering what is an elephant and one of them Felt the elephant's side and said, Well, an elephant is a wall. And another grabbed the elephant's legs and said, The elephant is a tree. And another grabbed the elephant's tail and said, No, an elephant is a rope. And still another, the tusk. And an elephant is a spear. And still another, you know, uh that that, that floppy ear. Oh, well, an elephant is uh, 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 like a huge fan. And so, you know. All of this commotion awakened the Raja who came out on the balcony and declared, you know, each of you has seen only a part. And what you need to do is you need to put your parts together so that you can get an accurate view of the whole. And in the same way, each of the religious faiths only see a part. And so you need to uh, put your parts together so that you can appreciate the whole of who God is. And that's why uh, uh, there would be a, a, a welcoming spirit of this coexistence between the different religious faiths. And we need to get along, especially in this age of uh, you know um, uh, uh, religious terrorism. There needs to be cooperative, a cooperative spirit between the faiths and recognize that each just sees a part of Of the whole. I think that's a pretty accurate summary of the perspective of religious pluralism. And I think that's why that makes sense to so many in our community. Okay? Here's what nags me about that. Just a few things just a few things that nag me about that All right first none of the faiths teach the same thing that's why there's so many different faiths See? i mean it's one thing to say There are many different flavors of ice cream in the world. Right? I could get into that. It's a whole other thing to say, all the flavors taste the same. No, they don't. That's why there are so many different flavors. Uh, uh, I mean, the faiths don't even agree on their definition of God. Why biblical Christianity is monotheistic, yet Trinitarian. Biblical Christians believe that God exists as one being in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God. And uh, there is one God. Okay? Monotheistic Trinitarianism. The Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, Islam and Judaism are monotheistic, but they're not Trinitarian. Theirs is a one being. One person perspective of God. See, that's different essentially. Fundamentally, when you boil the coffee down at the stain at the bottom of the cup, they're different. And still another faith says that that God is in nature or in a tree or in an animal. And yet still another faith teaches that God is in you. (laughs) You with me? I don't know that I'm with me. So anyway... So that God is in you, in your person. So that's that's just fundamentally different. Uh, You know, in the first century, if a Hindu student would have gotten up in the morning and said to his teacher, Teacher, I am God. You know what the teacher would have said? Congratulations, you finally figured it out. And that same morning in Israel, If a Hebrew student had awakened and said to his teacher, Teacher, I am God. Do you know what the teacher would have said? Stone him. Two entirely different essential uh, pieces of information about uh, these faiths. Therefore, Therefore, either all of them are wrong or one of them is right. But two of them, or all of them, can't be right because essentially they're different. They don't teach the same thing. So we're all wrong, or one of us is right. And that's, that, that's kind of what nags me. Furthermore... <laughs> How can you say that all faiths are the same unless you claim to possess a superior grasp of spiritual reality, which you just claimed no one else has? Let's go back to Raja and the blind men and the elephant. Each of the blind men say the elephant is, well, it's like a wall or a tree or a rope or a spear. And then the Raja comes out and says, each sees only a part. Put the parts together to see the whole. Well, that parable is fine. (laughs) Except Raja sees the elephant. But the point of the parable is that no one can see the elephant. So, how could. So, the the minute you claim to see the elephant, you're claiming to see that which you're saying no one else can see. You're saying that such a privileged perspective is impossible. It's like saying everybody's blind, so let me tell you how to see things. You see how. See how arrogant that sounds? Huh? I've come to the conclusion that people who say all religions are the same are are like people who say, well, all Chinese people look alike. Really? When you hear someone say that, you, you can make two unmistakable conclusions. Number one, they're not Chinese. Right, And number two, they're not very interested in Chinese people. Otherwise, they would take the time to observe closely. And it's the same with those who say all religions are the same. It is a sweeping generalization based on an uninformed mind. Furthermore, religious pluralism has mounted its own high horse in that it says, well, for you to say that your religion is superior to another religion, well, that's intolerant, that's arrogant, that's, you know. In other words, there is no absolute creed except the absolute creed of religious pluralism. And you see how how hypocritical that is? You may be here today, and you may not be a Christian, and you may be someone who walked in here today believing that all religions lead to God. I would just ask you to consider these things that are nagging me. I just want to put some of these pebbles in your shoe and ask you to walk around with them for a little bit. See? That's why I don't think it can make sense. So how do we respond? Well, I think we respond the way that the Apostle Paul did in our Scripture reading this morning. In Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34, the Apostle Paul confronted religious pluralism In the ancient city of Athens. And here's how he did it. Because how he did it is how God wants us to do it. The Apostle Paul confronted religious pluralism. Here's the big idea. God wants us to speak gospel truth in a gospel way. He wants us to give a gospel message with a gospel manner. God wants us to give gospel content with gospel courtesy. And I want you to see how he does that in these verses here this morning. Well, Paul arrived in the city of Athens because he was scurried out of the city of Berea because he was being persecuted. And he, when he arrived at the city of Athens, keep in mind in the first century, Athens was a tourist destination. Um, It was this amazing intellectual capital of the Roman Empire. There were three intellectual capitals uh, of the Roman Empire. Athens was one of them. Alexandria was still another. And then there was Tarsus. That's where Paul was from. Saul of Tarsus, we read. And so uh, this first visit to Athens, as far as we know, Paul saw this amazing city, and this, even then, it had a rich, rich history because it had housed these famous philosophers who'd been dead for centuries by the time Paul set foot in Athens Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Paul would have seen the Acropolis that you can see if you go to Athens. But here's what he noticed. Luke says, verse 16, saw, uh, Paul saw a forest of idols. The city was smothered with idols. 30,000 of them by one historian's estimation. In fact, one ancient historian said that in the city of Athens, it was easier to find a god than it was to find a human. Because the population in Athens in Paul's day was only about 10,000. So there were three times as many idols as humans. Notice what Paul felt in verse 16. It says that he was greatly distressed. Literally, it's, his spirit was provoked. He was agitated. And you can even use the word angered because it's the same word That is used of God when he sees idols. He's agitated and angry. Yeah, Athens would have been this tourist destination in the first century. Tourists would go by these idolatrous figures and and would see the art and would be impressed and ooh and ah. But that's not how Paul responded because he wasn't looking at the city through. Tourist lenses. He was looking at it through the eyes of Christ. He saw the irony of how this highly educated and erudite city was infested with superstitious idolatry and it agitated his spirit. Now, here is a question. As you're dealing with your friends, no matter what the subject matter is, let me ask this question Why do I want to converse? with them about spiritual matters? Why do I want to converse with them about religious pluralism? What's my heart motive? Is my heart motive to win a debate? Is that what this is about? Or do I want to change, or I want to share life-changing truth? See, that has to be settled before we engage in any conversation. And, and, Paul was just, he was just disturbed that this incredible historic city was under this this darkness of idolatry. And he wanted to give it the light of the gospel. And so he began, verse 17, in the synagogue why? Because that's where he always started when he went to a city. He would go to his, his own people, the Hebrews, and he would begin to, to show how God's covenant plan, starting with Abraham, whom God promised through him all nations would be blessed Paul would just walk them through salvation history in the Hebrew Bible and the prophets promising this coming Messiah and then Paul would say this promise in the Hebrew Bible and through the prophets was fulfilled in this man Jesus of Nazareth through signs and wonders and then he was put to death on a Roman cross and then he rose from the That's what Paul's that's what how Paul spoke to the Hebrew mind. But he didn't stay in the synagogue. We're told in verse 17 that he also went to the marketplace. What's the marketplace? That's where everything, we've got places all over, peppered all over town where we can go shopping and do business. But back then, it was all centered in one uh, marketplace, the agora. There would be commerce. There would be lectures. There would be legal proceedings. Uh, It all happened there in this crowded uh, marketplace. And that's where Paul engaged the culture. And the Bible says that he engaged a doctrine. Dialogue with a group of, it says, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, who are these? Well, I'm going to oversimplify, but the Epicureans were all about pleasure and literally tranquility. Pleasure of the body, pleasure of the mind, and tranquility of the body and the mind. and, 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 and they, their worldview of God was that God God was the gods existed in the fine particles of atoms that were nestled uh, 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 in the crevices of matter. Away from the hurly burly of uh, of of this world, and so and so. Uh, therefore, their worldview was seeking tranquility away from the hurly burly of life, and that's what they meant by pleasure and tranquility. And the Stoics, though the Stoics were more like pantheists, God's in everything, and so they were all about rationalism and reason over emotions, and so so. Paul gets into this conversation with them and they begin to mock him. What's this babbler trying to say? That word babbler literally is the word seed picker and it's a word picture of a, of a bird that snips a little seed in this garden plot and snips a little seed there and snips one there and snips one there and, 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 and they're basically mocking him. He say, where is he getting this stuff? I mean, uh, they, they, he must have plagiarized and he can't even produce a, an, an original thought and yet it intrigued them. So much so that they brought the Apostle Paul to a place called, you see that word? The Areopagus. The Areopagus. What is that? Well, the Areopagus was where the city's ruling council met. So it was an authorized body over the city of Athens. And this council, this council was no lightweight council. I mean, they had the authority to try criminals. They had the authority to regulate life in the city. And in some cases, they even had the authority to execute the guilty. And so Paul is brought before this council. And I, he wasn't arrested per se, but he's definitely been summoned. Why? Well, because look verse nineteen, may we know this new teaching that you are presenting you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. You see, the Areopagus had this system, they were kind of like a zoning board, so they would hear uh, they would hear uh, and review different ideas about different divinities, and if so, if For instance, from their perspective, if what Paul had to say resonated with the good people of Athens, well, someone's going to want to build an altar, and then someone's going to want to build a temple, and then someone's going to want to staff that temple, and then someone's going to want an annual dinner, and and that just is work, 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 and we need to have some sort of zoning procedure here, so we're going to give this guy, approval, uh, we're going to be the governing body to, 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 to credential what it is he's teaching. So you need to talk to us. You see, in verse 19 and 20, basically they're saying, Paul, we possess the legal right to judge what this new teaching is that's being spoken by you. Which is interesting, isn't it? They're pluralistic, but only on their terms. <laughs> So Paul begins his message with this very clever opening. Look at verse 22. Men of Athens, I see that in every way. You are very religious. It's clever because it could also be understood as you are very superstitious. So one of it's positive or one of it's negative. Which did he mean? Ah, Paul doesn't say. That's why it's clever. As I toured the city... I saw all of these idols, all of these objects of worship. He didn't even call them idols. He doesn't even call them idols. He calls them objects of worship. And then he found one to an unknown God. So Paul's point here is that he's not introducing a new deity. He's saying... what you Athenians have already constructed an altar to the one I want to tell you about, that which you don't know, I would like to make known. And by the way, if you look at Paul's speech here, you'll see the words like unknown and ignorance appear, and that is by intention. And it is a subtle slam because here he's telling these folk who have this highly high view of their own intelligence that, well, you're kind of ignorant. So let me teach you. And starting with creation, God te- uh, Paul tells of the creator God who made everything we see. So, so Paul is dismantling their worldview. And he's not seeking their approval to build a new temple or a new altar. Because the God who created the heavens and the earth is Lord of heavens and the earth and he doesn't need a temple and he doesn't need an altar and he doesn't need temple servants, does he? You see, it says in verse 25, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives. The God that Paul proclaims is not a taker like all the other idols were. God is a giver He gives breath, and he gives life. You see how he's confronting their worldview? He enters their worldview, but then he challenges it with the superior worldview of biblical Christianity. Furthermore, Paul says, this creator God is no distant deity. He's not hiding in the crevices of the hurly-burly of life. He is over and above, and he's involved, and From one man, verse 26, the first Adam, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And God set the times and the boundaries of those nations. You see, he's engaging and he's saying, I, "I'm." he's not distant, he's not far, he's active, he's involved. And in fact, Paul quotes, he doesn't quote from the Hebrew Bible here, does he? He engages with their own sources. He's not far from each of us. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our own being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, Paul reasons. You see his reasoning? From this, to this, to this, to this. Therefore, Paul says how foolish it is to assume that the divine could exist in something we fashion out of gold or silver. He says that from that, from entering their worldview, Paul then speaks the gospel when he says, this God that I'm proclaiming, who is creator, who is not far from us, who doesn't exist or live in idols, Paul says, I, this God is not seeking your approval. He's not seeking your credentialing, but I'll tell you what he is seeking. Repentance. Verse 30, in the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. We must bow before his holy otherness because he has set a day when he will judge the world. There is a man that he has appointed to be this judge. So you see how Paul's confronting their worldview. They have this cyclical worldview that life just moves in cycle after cycle after cycle. And Paul says, no, the worldview that is based on reality is not cyclical, it's destinational. God began history with the first Adam and he will conclude history with the second Adam. And that's why he says... That he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. You see what's going on here? Paul was invited to this council, and in their minds, they were auditioning him and this Jesus resurrection duo. They they were gonna make a decision as to whether, you know, they might allow Jesus to join them. (laughs) But the gospel is clear. Jesus doesn't want to join you. He wants to rule over you. Friends, it's the same today. Gee, listen. I said this the first message of this series, and I'll say it at the final message of this series, and it's an excellent quote from Kent Paris's Means of Grace. And here it is. Jesus is not interested in being a part of, Of your story. Okay? Because your story isn't that good. Jesus is inviting you and me to be a part of His story, where He's going, His destiny. That's the, essence of, that's the essence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity is not that I'm going to put Jesus into this chapter of my life and now it's going to be my best life ever. Eh. That's not Christianity. Christianity is Jesus saying, I want you to be a part of my story. I want you to be a part of my story, you see. Now, why, why would I believe that? You know why? Because we worship one who has stood on the balcony. We worship one who is at the top of the mountain. And from his perspective, there's not many paths up this mountain. Because he's been to the top of the mountain and he sees there's one path and he's the path. John chapter 3 verse 13 says no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven the son of man. That's Jesus. That's why later on in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 5 and 6 the apostle Paul would say for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. That's why the apostles would declare in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that's why our king himself said in John fourteen six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, why should we believe this? That's a fair question. And the apostle Paul gives us that answer In Acts chapter 17, verse 31, and it is the only reason why we should believe this. Paul says, he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Not a spiritual resurrection, not a resurrection of his teaching, but a bodily resurrection. The man they saw crucified to death On that Friday, got up from the dead. On that Sunday, the dead man came out of the grave walking. That's why we worship him. And at that, you know what the Athenians did? They cut him off. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Why? Because their worldview wouldn't allow it. That's why they refused to surrender their worldview. See? See, the Greeks believed that anything of the spirit is good, but anything of the body is bad. But that's not what biblical Christianity teaches. Biblical Christianity teaches creation, fall, redemption through the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Christ... And then there will one day be a new heavens and a new earth where with new bodies, what's a body? A container, a new immortal body, sinless, we will dwell with the Lord. That's a worldview. And they wouldn't accept that. And that's why they cut him off. Well, not all of them. Look, look. Others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Why? Why did they? Because Paul presented gospel truth in gospel ways. He presented the content he presented content with courtesy. And that's what we need to do here. That's the lesson for us today. Paul was invited and then demonstrated true classical tolerance. Do you remember? you remember what the word classical tolerance is? Classical tolerance says this, you really can't tolerate that with which you agree Classical tolerance means, well, I disagree with you, but I'm going to treat you with courtesy and civility. And that's what Paul did. And some of them sneered, and some of them came to Christ. Dionysius, he was one of the council members. And the church historian Eusebius tells us that Dionysius was the very first bishop Of Athens, he received the gospel. Well, wow. Let me close with uh, some ways that you can engage with your friends. Let me teach you two questions. Write these questions down, it'll help you in your conversations with your friends. One question is this. It's been spoken from this platform before by Greg Kokel from a ministry called Stand to Reason. When Greg was here, he gave us the questions. I'll remind you of them. Question number one. Question number one. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Ask the question and then listen. Listen. The second question is how did you come to that conclusion? How did you come to that conclusion? And then listen. And then listen. That'll, that'll first, that'll, that gives your friend, hey, I really, I'm really interested in how you're thinking and I'd, I'd like to interact with that. All right? And speaking of interacting with our friends, um, in our small group last week, uh, our whole Bible study was based on um, an article by a researcher named Tom Rainer. Tom Rayner has interviewed thousands of unbelievers of non-Christians, and these are the top seven statements non-Christians say about Christians. Let me just read through them and then and then comment. First, first... One of the first things that non-Christians say about Christians, Christians are against more things than they are for. So, you know, the idea is that it seems that Christians are just mad at the world, mad at each other, right? Number two, and this is interesting. Non-Christians say this. I would like to develop a friendship with a Christian. Wow. So the wish is for a Christian who'd be willing to invest the time, okay? Thirdly, I'd like to learn about the Bible from a Christian. Really? One of, them, one of them said, "The Bible really fascinates me. I don't want to go to a stuffy and legalistic church to learn about it. It would be nice if a Christian invited me to study the Bible in his home or at a coffee shop. Number four, I don't see much difference in the way Christians live compared to others. Hmm. Number five: I wish I could learn to be a better husband, wife, dad, mom, etc., from a Christian. One, one non-Christian said, my wife is threatening to divorce me and I think she means it this time. And my neighbor's a Christian. And he seems to have it together. I'm swallowing my pride and asking him to help me. Number six, some Christians try to act like they have no problems. One non-Christian talked about Harriet. Harriet works in my department. She's one of those Christians who seem to have a mask on. I would respect her more if she didn't put on such an act. I know better. And then seventh, I wish a Christian would take me to his or her church. Wow. This is what one non-Christian said. I really would like to visit a church, but I'm not particularly comfortable going myself. What is weird is that I'm 32 years old, and I've never had a Christian invite me to church in my entire life. So what I'm reading here is that non-Christians, they really want to interact with Christians because we do have life-changing truth that is based on reality. And they want to see our actions match our beliefs and they want us to be real. They truly want us and they truly want to connect with a life-changing community who passionately pursues Christ. And we can do that as we communicate gospel truth in a gospel way amen would you bow your heads and uh would you just close your eyes and would you just think about your friend or a friend who doesn't know the lord would you think about them get their get their face in your mind right now maybe it's a friend maybe it's a relative And I want you to think through uh, just this prayer. Lord, how can I present gospel truth in a gospel way? How can I engage in a spiritual conversation that might lead to another spiritual conversation, conversation, that might lead to another conversation, that might lead to another conversation, that might culminate in a decision? Oh, God, help us have the heart of Paul toward people around us who are smothered in idols, false gods who take and take and take and never give. Thank you that we worship the one true God who gives. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. why don't we close this service out into more worship